Guardian Unlimited. Order. Questions to the Prime Minister, Graham Brady. Mr. Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in the House, I shall have further such meetings later today. The, the owner of a local small business wrote to me yesterday saying, having been made redundant, I started my own small business. Approaching retirement, I was hoping the sale would contribute to my pension, already reduced by the raid on pensions by Gordon Brown. Under the new tax rules, under the new tax rules, his, Let the honourable gentleman speak. Under the new tax rules, his tax bill will rise from 2,520 to 9,504 pounds. Can the Prime Minister tell my constituents what he has done wrong and why his behaviour is being penalised? Mr. Speaker. We have cut capital gains tax from 40% since 1997 when the Tories were in. We, we have, as the Leader of the Opposition acknowledges, the most successful economy. We have created 2.5 million jobs and unemployment is down today and businesses are thriving. Friend, friend will be aware that last Saturday marked the anniversary of the collapse of Fairpack, um, which 122,000 small savers lost their money, were robbed of their money. Um, I have just met with the administrator who tells me that she is unlikely to pay back any money before Christmas this year. In addition, none of the reports will be made public under law. Would my right honourable friend be prepared to meet me and my honourable friend, the member for Livingston, to discuss how we can speed up and get justice for the victims yeah. of Fairpack? Yeah. What happened to Fairpack was completely unacceptable. We have worked very closely with all those people who have lost money as a result of Fairpack. We will continue to do so, and I will be very happy to meet the honourable lady and any other members concerned about Fairpack so that justice is done. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Speaker. In the last four years, the number of people who've died from the hospital-acquired infection C. difficile has trebled. Ninety patients died in one hospital trust alone. The Healthcare Commission said last week, where trusts are under severe pressure to meet targets relating to finance and access, concern for infection control may be undermined. Will the Prime Minister now accept that the number and extent of his top-down targets are contributing to this problem? It, 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 it is because, uh, Mr. Speaker, we are concerned about MRSA and CDVCL that in the last few weeks we have taken very special measures. Is isolation, isolation wards, we, we, have we are about to appoint 3,000 more matrons. We are also about to do a deep clean of hospitals. And when he comes to the issue of targets and quotes the Health Care Commission, let me, let me quote him the Chairman of the Health Care Commission, Sir Ian Kennedy. He says, targets or their equivalent are an inevitable feature of a modern 21st century healthcare system. He says, the obligation to meet targets cannot be used as an excuse for failing to meet other managerial objectives. He also says, and I hope the opposition leader will take this to account, targets are not to blame for the trust leaders taking their eye off the ball. And he says that managers always have to deal with conflicting priorities and plenty of organisations do it successfully. In other words, 
It is not targets that are to blame. We have got to invest in the health service. Now, will he invest in the health service as we will? It's quite clear, Mr Speaker, he hasn't read the Health Care Commission report. The report could not be clearer. On the Maidstone Hospital, it says senior managers were reluctant to implement major infection control measures because of the need to meet targets. And it wasn't just that one hospital. The report into Stoke Mandeville said the achievement of the government's targets was seen as more important than the management of the clinical risk inherent in C. difficile. This was a significant failing. Almost one in two hospitals agree that targets are getting in the way of infection control. The National Audit Office, the Public Accounts Committee, both agree. What makes him think he is right and they are wrong? Well, Mr. Speaker, he has not done his research. Mr. Speaker, targets are responsible for waiting lists which were at a quarter of a million being almost zero for those people at six months. Targets are responsible for a 17% fall in heart disease. Targets are responsible for a 40% fall in coronary disease. And And he wants to quote the Healthcare Commission. I have quoted Sir Ian Kennedy, who is the chairman of the Healthcare Commission, saying targets are not to blame. But let me also quote the new chief executive of Maidstone NHS Trust. Targets are there, he said, for a reason. That should not stop us from focusing majorly on patient safety. That is the number one priority. Now, the Leader of the Opposition should recognise that the reason we can invest more in tackling MRSA and CDVCL is that we are spending more money on the health service. He voted against that spending. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister... Order. Order. The Right Honourable Gentleman. The Prime Minister came to office saying he would listen order, to people. Order. I hope the Honourable Gentleman, Mr Austin, you're not going to keep shouting again. You have a difficulty in Prime Minister's questions. You keep shouting. You shouldn't do it. It comes to something when you have to tick off the Prime Minister's own PPS. The Prime Minister said, the Prime Minister said he would listen to people, but he's not listening to those working in the NHS. The Health Care Commission quotes one senior manager saying, if anyone says the top priorities aren't money and targets, they are lying. The nurse of the year, the nurse of the year who resigned today, says she's leaving because of bureaucracy, reorganisation and paperwork. MRSA deaths have quadrupled. C. difficile deaths have trebled. If we're going to deal with hospital-inquired infections, doesn't the Prime Minister understand he has got to listen to the people who work in the NHS? Mr Speaker, it is precisely because I have been listening to the British people that we have put an extra £100 million into tackling MRSA and CDBCL. It is precisely because we are listening that since I took over this job, we are now insisting that every patient who comes to hospital is going to be screened against the possibility of MRSA. It is precisely because we are listening that we are going to do a deep clean of hospital wards. And it is precisely because I am listening that we are going to double the number of matrons. Now, none of that extra expenditure would be possible if we accepted the Conservative Party plans on spending. They have a six billion black hole in their spending plan. It will mean deep cuts in the National Health Service. 
the Leader of the Opposition should listen to the experts on this matter who are saying that targets are not to blame. What is to blame is that we need investment and reform in the health service, and only this side can do it. If if the Prime Minister wants to ask me questions, call an election. Meantime, Meantime, the Prime Minister says... The Prime Minister says this is all about how much he listens. This is all about how much he listens. So let's ask about the other important issue of this week and whether he's listening. His manifesto promised a referendum on the European Constitution. The overwhelming majority of people in this country want a referendum on the European Constitution. European leaders, the European Scrutiny Committee and his own representative on the European Convention all say the new treaty is the same as the, as the Constitution. So will he tell us why won't he grant a referendum on that Constitution? I, I see, Mr Speaker, he's given up on the health service now. Let's come to the European issue. In 1992, every member of that shadow cabinet refused a referendum on a far more significant treaty, the Foreign Secretary voted against a referendum on Mastery. Now, wh- wh- why, is this, uh, why is this treaty different? It is different because it is not a constitutional treaty. It is an amending treaty. Why, why is it different? Because we won a protocol in the Charter of Rights, because we've got an opt-in in Justice and Home Affairs, because we've got an emergency break on social security, because we've exempted the security issues. All these changes have been brought about in the last few months. And that's why, Mr Speaker, there is not a government in Europe, apart from the one in Ireland, that is bound constitutionally to have a referendum on anything that is proposing to have a referendum on this treaty. And just as in 1992 they voted against a referendum, they should have the honesty to vote against it now. Before we call the next question, Mr Jackson, you must be quiet as well. You're not the only one, but if I get you to be quiet, then the others will follow. I'm sure they will. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister called my right of all friend, the Foreign Secretary. I've got to say to him, it's just a matter of time. And let's be clear about what Labour's representative on the European Convention, the member for Birmingham, Edgbaston, I don't know whether... Where is she? She's probably been sent for re-education. Let's be, um, let's be clear about what she said. The red lines are red herrings. It's a matter of trust and integrity. A referendum was promised. It should be delivered. If Labour can't trust the people, why should the people trust Labour? A simple question. Isn't she right? We will do what is right in the interests of the British people. And, and if, he wants, if he wants to trade quotes... Let, let him listen to the chairman of his own democracy commission, who says that the proposal for a referendum under the Tory plans is crackpot, then he says it's dotty, and then he says it's frankly absurd. And I, I, know, I, know, I know the leader of the opposition, I know the leader of the opposition likes pre-rehearsed soundbites, and I know, I know, I know, I, I know, oh yeah, and I know. And I know that he's. Um, I know that he's. Uh, I know that he's. Um, I know that he's good at PR. Order, order. Please, Mr. Speaker, he's good at PR. 
but, but didn't, didn't, didn't he go too far last weekend when he went to California? And he said in an interview in the newspaper, he said, look at me, he said. He said, look at me, he said. He said, look at me and think of Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's the last thing in anybody's mind. People, people will look at him and just say, here is a man who breaks his promise. Why doesn't he admit the reason he won't have a referendum is that he's scared of losing it? And doesn't he understand that if he breaks his promise on this, no one will trust him on anything else? Mr Speaker, if we were deciding to join the Euro, we would have a referendum. If it was the old constitutional treaty, we would have a referendum. Because it is an amending treaty that is not fundamental change, we have managed to negotiate red lines in Europe, which mean that the national interest is protected. And Britain will decide on justice and home affairs. Britain will decide on foreign policy, where it's multilateral. Britain will decide on social security. And Britain will decide on national security. And we will at all times stand up for the British national interest. On, uh, on Saturday evening, I sense the nation will be watching its television sets as England plays South Africa uh, in what has been an extraordinary Rugby World Cup. I wonder if the Prime Minister would like to send a message to the team. M Mr Speaker, I, 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 I thought I might be able to speak for the whole House here. I think the whole House wishes to congratulate the England team on a magnificent performance in reaching the final. I think the whole House wants to wish uh, Brian Ashton and Phil Vickery and the whole team our best wishes for Saturday's match. And as someone who, like my honourable friend, follows rugby and met the England team recently, we wish to send our best wishes so that England returns with the World Cup on Saturday night. Vincent Cable. Yeah. Mr. Speaker, does the, uh, does the Prime Minister agree with the comments of the Chief Secretary to the Treasury that there is a moral case for rewarding marriage through the tax system? Well, Mr. Speaker, can I first of all say, and I think I speak for the whole House, uh, that we uh, send our, our best wishes to the former leader of the Liberal Party. Uh, who is a distinguished uh, parliamentarian. He is a man of integrity, he is a man of honesty, and he is a man of decency. And let me, and let me welcome, let me welcome the, the, the Shadow Chancellor of the Liberal Party to his position as uh, temporary leader of the Liberal Party. If things go on in this Parliament with the rate of change, every single Liberal member will have the chance to be a member of the Liberal Party. As far as the uh, tax systems are concerned, it is because we recognise marriage in the tax system that we have done and made the changes we have on inheritance tax. It is because we recognise marriage in the tax system that, uh, that, that, that it is only possible because we recognise marriage in the tax system. But as far as children's tax credits and child benefit are concerned, 
I believe the duty of every citizen of this country is to support not just some children in our country, but all children. I uh, thank him for his gracious comments and for his welcome. Uh, both of us are happily married men, uh, but uh, wh why has he... Uh, why has he crafted... Why has he crafted an inheritance tax system? Why has he crafted an inheritance tax system that discriminates against millions of unmarried couples and their children? And why is he lining up with the Tories to defend the principle that these families should not merely be condemned to the everlasting flames of hell, but should be taxed more on the way? I, I, I'm, great, I'm grateful uh, to him for letting me into the secrets of his uh, marriage. Can, can I say on, on, on inheritance tax, it has always been the case that marriage is recognised in the inheritance tax system. I have not seen him making uh, very detailed proposals to change that in recent uh, years. As far as inheritance tax is concerned, if we took up his proposal and extended it to everyone, then that would be a very great expense that is additional indeed. And I do not know how the Liberal Party policies would be able to cope with yet another spending commitment. Because in the last few days, uh, days we have had commitments to a border police force, high-speed rail links, more money to visit Britain, reducing VAT on historic buildings, 18 billion of spending commitments in all, and the most, the most recent one that I want to draw attention to, more investment in bullying prevention. Perhaps they should look at it as a party. Does the, uh, does the Prime Minister agree that the Treasury Committee that is looking into Northern Rock would have a lot more clout if it could only intervene before these financial dealings got out of control. Is he aware that the Notting Hill Finance Group have got another financial scam to spend £3.5 billion of taxpayers' money and only raise £650 million? That's another Northern Rock waiting to explode. And one of them's got previous. He was involved in Black Wednesday. Mr. Speaker, it, my, my, my friend is absolutely right. There is a six billion black hole in the Conservative promises. They cannot afford to pay for the spending commitments. They are back to the situation they were in 1992. More spending, less taxes, less borrowing. And where did it end? It ended not only in Black Wednesday, but three million people unemployed, public spending cuts, 15% mortgage rates, and the economic adviser to the Chancellor is the Leader of the Opposition. The Prime Minister should be aware that the Royal Monmouthshire Royal Engineers have sent over 100 TA soldiers to Iraq in support of hard-pressed regular British soldiers. Could he explain to this House why, therefore, funding for the Territorial Army has been slashed by millions of pounds and the Royal Monmouthshire have been told they can no longer recruit? I shall, I, I shall look in immediately to what he says about the Royal Monmouthshire, but I can say to him that expenditure on the Defence Forces as a whole is going to rise by more than a billion a year over the next few years. We, we, we have just made it possible for there to be extra commit, uh, commitment to equipment in Afghanistan. We will do everything in our power to support the magnificent men and women who are fighting for our armed forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I hope that would be common ground between the parties. Yeah. Dr. Herbst, 
Does my right honourable friend share my concerns that obesity is the most important public health issue facing our nation today, not only shortening the lives of sufferers but ultimately affecting the whole of society? Does he share my view that this cannot be tackled by government alone? But will he outline his government's proposals to deal with this very important problem? My, 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 my honourable friend is a doctor and he brings to this subject a great deal of knowledge about the damage that is done to young children as a result of uh, obesity being a right to go unchallenged. We must not only uh, deal with the advertising of unacceptable foods and persuade uh, the food, the food labelling authorities to make food labelling better to deal with these foods, but we must also have a push on fitness in our schools, and that's why we are able to move from two hours a week sport in our schools to five hours a week over the next few years, and that's why every young child will have the chance to enjoy a range of sports in their schools, and it is possible only because we are able to spend the money that is necessary to recruit sports teachers and improve that education in our schools, and it would not be possible if we had a six billion black hole in our finances. Mr Speaker, last Friday I saw how moved the Prime Minister and the Defence Secretary were at the opening of the Armed Forces Memorial near Litchfield. Mr Speaker, there are places there for 16,000 men and women who since 1945 have lost their lives serving their country. Would the Prime Minister now take this opportunity to clarify, though, precisely how many troops currently in Iraq will now return to the United Kingdom before Christmas? Mr Speaker, can, can I uh, join him? in paying tribute to all who made possible this new national memorial, which is in the centre of our country and able to be visited by friends, relatives and families from all over the United Kingdom to pay tribute to those who have lost their lives since the Second World War. And there are 16,000 names, as he rightly says, uh, already uh, there, commemorated in the stone, and it is a most magnificent uh, uh, a statue and memorial that has been created out of the donations of large numbers of uh, people. And I hope uh, all uh, constituency members of Parliament will be able to help uh, their constituents visit this memorial. As far as what he says about Iraq is concerned, I've said before, the numbers go down from 5,500 to 2,500 and then to 2,500 uh, by next spring. They go from 5,500 to 4,500 and then 4,000 in southern Iraq over the next few months. Senator McCarthy Fry. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. In view of the appalling ongoing situation in Burma, I welcome the announcement by European ministers yesterday of stronger sanctions, but I particularly welcome the announcement by our Prime Minister of the promise of aid if the Burma regime does move towards greater democracy and reconciliation. What does the Prime Minister think we can do further to help the people of Burma? The, the Burmese regime, and I think all, all parties on all sides of the House agree this, is a repressive uh, an illegal and undemocratic uh, regime. Uh, the sanctions that have been agreed by the European Union this week are important sanctions to deal with the export and import of timber, uh, but we must move forward and look at investment sanctions as well. The Burmese regime must know that unless they change, we will step up the sanctions against their regime. At the same time, uh, we support the efforts of Mr Gambari, the United Nations uh, envoy, who is now in the region, and I hope he'll be given the chance to meet a wide range of people in Burma so that he can assess the situation. And as my honourable friend, who's taken a very big interest in these matters over the years, has said, we are ready to support with funds 
a, a reinvestment programme so that the poverty and injustice and inequality that exists in Burma can be tackled if there is a move towards reconciliation and democracy uh, in that uh, country. So our strategy is not only to push the regime to change, but to offer for a new regime, a new government, uh, support in economic development uh, and social improvement. And I believe that all countries around the world, including China and the Asian countries, will be prepared to support this initiative. Adrian Saunders. An English heritage survey this week found that 75% of respondents said that seaside towns were shabby and unattractive and that the government should invest more to preserve what is distinctive about them. Now, my constituency of Torbay works very, very hard to upgrade its facilities and to make it an attractive place, and I'm sure the same is true of all our seaside towns. What is the government going to do to help the renaissance and regeneration of these important contributors to the British economy? I happen to agree with the Honourable Member that we must do more over the next few years for our coastal towns. We must make them more attractive for tourism and we must aid their economic regeneration. It's why we've increased expenditure in real terms on coastal towns by nearly 40% over the last 10 years. And I have to say that as a result of employment growth, there has been a 12% rise in employment in coastal towns over the last decade compared with 7% for the economy as a whole. But the regional development agencies and local government will be given the resources that are needed so that we can regenerate where it is necessary the coastal towns that can serve our economy by being great tourist attractions as well as very lovely places to live in. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Is my right honourable friend aware that in my constituency the number of people claiming job seekers allowance in 1997 was 7%, it is now just 3.1%? And does the Prime Minister agree that the, the main reason for this success is the implementation by this Government of, of the New Deal and by creating better pathways into work? Pathways into work. Well, well, Mr Speaker, there, there are 2.5 million more people in jobs than in 1997. 2 million people have been helped by the New Deal since 1997, either to get training or to get a job. There are, there are a large number of people now coming off incapacity benefit as a result of the measures we are taking. There are more single parents going into work, and there are now 700,000 single parents, not more than a million, who are on the inactive uh, register. And we have taken the numbers of people on income support and other benefits down by a million over the last 10 years. But that is only possible because we have a new deal that is able to help people get back into work. Unfortunately, the party opposite would scrap the new deal. And this and let the debate begin. Do we want a new deal that will help people get jobs and equip people for the future so that British workers can get British jobs, or do we want to have a £6 billion black hole in public expenditure? In the Billingham. Yeah. 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 Mr Speaker, is the Prime Minister aware that during the past year, army families were forced to call the MOD's special housing helpline 400,000 times? How does this dreadful state of affairs, after 10 years of a Labour government, square with his pledge in Basra to uphold the military covenant? I'm grateful to him raising the question of Ministry of Defence accommodation because as part of the spending round, we've agreed that over the next 10 years, £5 billion will be spent on accommodation. That is not simply renovating the barracks that exist. It is also allowing and making it possible for young servicemen and their families
to be able to become owner occupiers for the first time. And I hope he will support that additional expenditure. But I have to say to the party opposite, when we decide to make additional expenditures on defence and on housing and on health, where I, I'm grateful to him because he, he, he had to apologise for the Leader of the Opposition when he said that hospitals were going to close. But when we make additional expenditure in these areas, I hope that the opposition parties, instead of having a black hole in the figures, will support the extra public investment. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My right honourable friend earlier this year visited Ceres Power in Crawley, developing a low-energy fuel cell that will probably be the uh, result of making sure that we, many of our homes are low-energy output homes for the future. In the last week's um, comprehensive spending review, there was the important environmental transformation fund announced. How will Ceres Power and other companies like that be able to take advantage? Yeah. Was, um, I was very uh, grateful for the chance to visit my honourable friend's uh, constituency, and she is a wonderful MP representing the interests of her constituents. And, and last week, when we announced that we will continue with our programme, which is doubling science investment, one of the major beneficiaries will be the environmental and energy industries. And I see not only British inventions flowing from this, but new British jobs in the years to come. And again, I hope there will be all party support for this rapidly increasing science budget so that British inventions can create British jobs for British workers. Is the Prime Minister aware of the anger and concern about proposed changes to hospital provision in South East London, and in particular the cuts proposed and downgrades to our own hospital at Queen Mary Sidcup? Can he confirm that the consultation will not be a sham, that he will actually listen to what is being said by local people, or is this just another example of London being let down by Labour? I think, I think the Honourable Member will, will acknowledge that in London alone there are 27 new hospital schemes over the last few years, there are 44,000 more NHS staff, there are 650 more dentists, and there is more investment going into the hospital service than ever before. And I hope he will not fall for the scare stories peddled by the Leader of the Opposition about hospitals that are not closing and about the effects of the Darcy report. We are investing more than ever in hospitals and the health service in London, and that is only possible because the economy is moving forward and we are able to create the wealth in this country as a result of a Labour government. Honourable members must leave the chamber quietly. Guardian Unlimited.